Welcome, debut riders, to the Thunderdome! Where's my axe? I'm hungry! Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Get to Work Hurley, the podcast for anyone who's ever been frustrated with the professional writing life. And if you aren't frustrated yet, you will probably be soon. So no matter what, this is a great podcast for you. I am your host, Cameron Hurley. And in today's episode, we will talk about what good agents can do for you. I think there's a, there's always this um bashing of heads online about, hey, should I get an agent? Should I not get an agent? Oh, all agents are scammers. Oh, you know, agents are great. Um, it really depends on the agent, it turns out. And we'll talk about that. Uh, and of course, we're also going to talk about, you know, something that's really interested me and I've been talking to um, some of my writer colleague friends about it. And that is how to navigate that tricky gray area when you make the leap from like this scrappy new writer to the voice of the establishment, you know, where suddenly everything you do is looked at with a fine tooth comb and all the things that you, you know, were saying as a fan, just sort of throwing them out into the ether now get taken, you know, so seriously and it becomes these internet wars and um, starts to affect many different aspects of your life. And you're like, whoa, I'm just a fan. I'm just a noob. I'm just and people like nope not anymore welcome welcome debut riders to the thunderdome uh then we will go ahead and we'll circle back and do some book recs because tis the season i think there are many that i've talked about certainly on twitter but um i got a few more in that i think that you will all enjoy now let's talk about literary agents Rental literary agents as opposed to film agents. I'm getting some experience now working with a couple different film agents, and that's a whole different ballgame. But I'm going to talk about something that I know a little bit about, which is, you know, the 10 or 11 years now that I've had uh, two different agents, actually. Now, I tweeted about this earlier, and I said, hey, you know, if you have an agent who couldn't be bothered to return your emails or rep your books or even read them, I know people who have agents that do not read their books, then dump them. They're getting 15% of your take, often for life or until the book is out of print. That's for life, people. Life of, you know, the, again, the deal or the book or whatever. 15%. Many now are also trying to take percentages of subrights deals after you leave them, which I think is super gross. Um, but I've let my current agent kind of hash that out with my prior agent when it comes up. Now, what that means is say you sign with an agent, they sell one book for you, you write a few other books for them. And they're just like, nope, these are shitty. I don't want to rep them. I'm not going to take them out. And you're like, okay. And so what happens is you have done that one deal with them. Then let's say you leave that agent, you leave that agent, and then someone comes in and says, oh, I want to buy Spanish rights for this book that other agent had done with. So that agent that you fired because they're shitty is going to then get 15% of the take for this Spanish deal that they had nothing to do with. That goes for movies and stuff, too. Uh, whenever possible, try to get the fuck out of these. Uh, read that clause very carefully in your agency agreements. 
uh, or, you know, after the fact, try to uh, have your agent work out some kind of sub rights deal because it's very shitty and I don't agree with agents doing that. But anyway, that's a whole other issue, whole podcast. A lot of people took this rant to mean that you should not get an agent, a literary agent. And that is not what I meant at all. It just means don't get a shitty agent because shitty agents, it's true, are often worse than no agent because then a lot of times I've actually had people say, you know, I sent a, basically the the publisher sent in a boilerplate. Boilerplate means it is the contract that they automatically just give to everyone. It's has the same terms, the same uh, stuff. And it's usually a huge rights grab. They try and get movie rights. They try and get sub rights. They try and get audio rights. They try and get everything, everything they want it all um, forever. And there are some agents literally will just send you the boilerplate and be like, well, do you want to take this deal or not? And then they'll take 15%. My favorite ones, though, are people like, yeah, so I'm working with this editor. And, you know, finally, after all this time, I got them to send me a contract and I send it to my agent. My agent's like, well, do you want it or not? (laughs) Just let me sign it. And I'm like, why do you have an agent? What's the point? So they get 15% for doing what? What exactly are they doing? They're literally doing nothing. Those are shitty agents. You know, your agent who you email and doesn't respond for a week or two or three or ten. Or you send them a manuscript and they don't respond for six months. This is a problem. This is a shitty agent who doesn't give a shit about your work. They're clearly overwhelmed and they don't realize it yet, or they just aren't into you anymore and they don't realize that yet. It's not okay. People often ask, you know, with my agent, how long does it take for her to get back to you? I will often get stuff back the same day. If she's in the middle of doing something, negotiating contract, it might be 24 hours. I don't know that I've ever waited longer than a weekend to get a response from my agent. I once, you know, emailed her and said, hey, I have this super fucked up thing with these royalty statements and I don't understand it. And she literally emailed me within 15 minutes and was like, hey, I'm on a call right now, but give me 15 minutes and I will jump on the phone with you and we'll go over them together. Right? Like that's someone you feel like is a responsive business partner. If they are just kind of sitting there waiting for you to send them a book and then you send them a book and they're like, great. And they go send it out and then they just send you the boilerplate from the editors. Like you could literally just do that yourself. You could go to a party, you know, at a convention and be like, hey, so-and-so editor, I have this and give them your pitch. Killing Eve meets Die Hard in Space. And be like, yeah, send me that. Now, here are some things that my agent actually does for me, right? That first thing was a, a good example as well. It's just she's responsive. She will go over you know statements and stuff with me. She also actually negotiates the contracts, okay? And that means not just, you know, sends me, bo- you know, the, the publisher boilerplate, but also doesn't just send me the agency boilerplate. So the agency boilerplate then is a negotiate, a contract that has been negotiated between a certain, the publisher and the agency itself. A lot of people say, hey, what's the point of me you know, signing with an agency or an agent when I could just have a lawyer or a sing, you know, an agent who's my spouse or whatever rep me. The reason is because a lot of times what will happen is an agency who has like really high powered clients, um, like you sell a bazillion books, they will request changes to, to the actual boilerplate contract with the agency. And they're able to do that because they have more weight. They have more pull. So that when I get the boilerplate contract from the um, publisher, it already has a lot of those changes in it. And so that gives you some extra 
some extra push. And that was one of the things that I was very clear about is that I want, I want to actively go over my contracts with my agent to, you know, improve deal language, option clauses, reversions, and shit that I just don't like. And we go over every one. And every single one, you know, she may say, hey, I'm not sure we can get that. Uh, you know, again, it doesn't matter. It, it's in the agency boilerplate or not. She's going to try to adjust it because everybody, every client is different and all of our needs are different. Uh, and she and I go over those every single time to understand them. She will sit down with me or sit down on the phone and we will go through it. Literally, I think the last one that we did for losing gravity, we went over it clause by clause because there were some changes to it um, over the last time because of Milo is a piece of shit. We went over that so I understood it and so that I could bring to her any issues or problems, you know, that I had or that, you know, I could bring her those issues and problems and she could say, you know what, I don't see that the, in my experience is not an issue. This is why. And I might disagree with her at the end of the day. If I say, you know what, uh, this is the hill I want to die on. She's going to go die on that hill. That's her job is to be the bad guy. Now, I, as a client, of course, want to be a good client and I'm not going to try and be a pain in the ass if I really am asking for, if I'm like, well, I want 50% royalties on eBooks. And she's like, well, I'll ask for you, but that shit's not happening. And at which point you have to go, well, is there, are you going to walk away? Uh, and so that's, you also need to be as a writer, you have to understand how far you can push these things and always ask. I mean, there's lots of times where she's gone out and asked for things like, yeah, I want all this money up front on signing. And people are like, sure. And you're just like, holy shit. So there are some, there are some things you can get um, that, but you're not going to get anything if you don't ask. And that was, that's one thing she does is she always finds unique and interesting asks for contracts and things, things that I wouldn't even think of like bonuses and stuff. Now for my agent specifically, I actually chose her because she gives extensive creative and structural notes. Not everyone wants that from an agent. Some people like to be a little more hands off or to get just general impressions or ideas. I knew that I needed to work on structure and plot and I wanted someone who really did extensive work. I talked to a couple of her clients, Pierce Brown and Brian Stavely and said, Hey, how do you work with her? How, uh, what kind of you know feedback do you get? And her first edit letter to me was 15 pages. She sees my work through from the initial pitch. It was her idea. Like, oh, hey, you know, Simon & Schuster for your second book after Stars Are Legion is a book based on that short story, The Light Brigade, which I thought was really cool. I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't done a military science fiction. That sounds great. We work together creatively uh, as well as from a, you know, the, the nuts and bolts business perspective, because to me, it's all the business, right? The writing is the business. The contracts are the business. The strategy, uh, the relationships, you know, between you and your publishers and editors are the business. And so she becomes, you know, kind of my, my business partner in that way. Uh, when now here's a big one is that <laughs> when shit gets fucked up, as it inevitably does, when shit gets fucked up at a publisher, whether it's covers or copy editing, you know, deadlines or something is fucked up, you know, she deals with it. She deals with it. So I don't have to, you know, I'll get on the phone. I will bitch about it whatever with her and she'd be like, okay, I'll go handle it. And we, and she has those tough conversations. So I can maintain a positive relationship with my editor. She can be the bad guy. Right. And I can get back to writing. That to me is very important, especially I think with my first trilogy, there was so much business bullshit and so many problems with it that I felt it was all on me and that I was all alone in dealing with it. It was really hard 
and demoralizing. It was it was tough to focus on writing because I was just so I just felt so alone in in the entire process. And one of the things that's been great about having a great agent is you feel less alone in that process. You know, that's why her and I also talk about like career strategy and seeking out new opportunities. She's always looking for new deals and projects for me. I actually got, again, a check for something she pitched that I didn't even have to write a pitch for. She just pitched it. And they're like, sure, here's some money. <laughs> like, Great free money. She's also done, again, she's in LA. And so she connects me with kind of film agents and makes connections and follow-ups. And, and she really aggressively pursues these um, film agent relationships for various projects. She even wrote like a treatment for a short story of mine and pitched it. And again, all I did was review the document. She actually has been pushing a show that, that we are in the second, with the second call with a production company who's interested in it. And she was, she's been pushing that show for years. Been, we've been working on that. But again, it's, she is, she's actively involved in my career. Um, she is, acts a lot like a business partner. And I think, you know, we talked about again, like royalty statements, reviews, and translation. If you have never seen a royalty statement, or frankly, if you think you understand a royalty statement and then you switch publishers and you get a different royalty statement, it's a pain in the ass. It is like trying to understand your, summary of benefits from your health insurance if you're in America. It can be very, very cerebral. And sometimes I think I get it. And I don't think I'm a stupid person. Right? I try I try to be, to figure this stuff out. Um, but there's lots of stuff where I just don't understand. And so she has worked with so many of these and understands them and with so many publishers. So she sits down with me and we go over them. And then she also will glance over stuff and go, hey, are there errors? Um, she has found lots of stuff where you know, we had we had adjusted a percentage that I was getting and they had not adjusted that percentage. And so I was getting less money and it wasn't a lot. Right. It's like sixty dollars here, two hundred dollars there. But it adds up. And that's something that you want to make sure you have someone besides you who is actively looking at that. She's also been very helpful with addressing like old business, even on deals. Like I said, like she didn't do. She recently started out some missing statements for my God's War books and helped resolve an old issue with that series. And she didn't make any money on that. Again, that 15% that goes to the prior agent, that prior agent who did not respond to the emails was, was the one who got that 15%. So it's great to have somebody who is like in your corner and part of your business. I also use her a lot as like an advisor or a sounding board. And again, like that goes back to kind of career strategy. Again, I may not always agree with her, but I rely on her expertise and her input to kind of help me make decisions, knowing still that the final decisions are always going to be mine. You know, she answers my goddamn emails. For real, the amount, the number of writers, friends, I have talked to who are like, oh, I haven't heard from my agent in weeks. And I'm like, well, did you send a follow-up email? Yeah. Then they aren't working for you. Respond to the goddamn emails within 48 hours. Come on. Leave it 48 hours just to say, hey, I saw your email. I will deal with this in a second. I mean, come on. One of the things, of course, I also need is when I'm freaking the fuck out, my agent really helps put it in perspective. I was like really annoyed at some stupid things. And she was like, well, I think it looks fine. <laughs> just like this happens. But do you want me to deal with it? But she's like, do you want me? And I said, no, I just want to bitch about it. Uh, and you know what? Like this. This business can feel really isolating. And she gives me this outside perspective of my career, my sales numbers, and even like my public rep. 
Uh, if I'm spiraling, she can like offer a pep talk or a boot to the ass, respectively. <laughs> Mostly the boot to the ass, which I do need. One of the things I also like, of course, is that she's honest if my work sucks. And that means I can also trust her when she says my work is good. Because sometimes I just really have to let it go. We got to move on. We got to go to the next thing. I mean, there's more stuff, but that's a really good overview of the whole, well, what the fuck can an agent do for me? You know, for 15% of your work, for what may be your whole life, they better be doing more than just sending you agency boilerplate contracts and being like, so you want to sign it? <laughs> sign it or not? For real. I get so frustrated about this. I literally just told a colleague like a couple months ago, just fire everyone. Fire everyone involved in the shitty deal that they were dealing with because it was clear. It was clear those people were not actively working on my colleague's behalf. They're just cashing checks and, and lawyers are cheaper. But great agents, my friends, great agents are absolutely worth it. The next topic I wanted to jump into was this idea of figuring out the point where you as a writer go from being a nobody basically or a scrappy debut novelist where it's like oh finally after 10 years she's gotten a book it's like yay but when you go from that to then basically being part of the establishment i say the the okay boomer of publishing is okay bestseller because there's so many like bestsellers so like i'm just a scrappy newcomer i'm like no sweetheart no <laughs> you're not God bless. God bless. But no, you know, I remember, and this is, again, it's a funny transition. I remember, I think I'd written the God's War series at this point. And I remember getting a very long email from an established writer who'd been writing for easily 10 more years than I had. And this was a few years ago, but um, the author had had a TV show, had 10 or 12 books out, one of which was, you know, one of the series of books was this best-selling series, again, publishing for over a decade. And, but I'd written an article about how authors needed to understand that they had a perceived power differential in the business, right? And that their words, once they're published, came with weight. No matter how, like, not rich and not famous that they felt, the author took issue with this, <laughs> insisting that they did not feel rich or powerful or special. And I pointed out that their feelings in the matter of how power works really didn't have much bearing on their actual power. And, you know, as somebody who largely got recognition in this business through my blog back in 2004, before it was anybody, just this rando on the Internet talking about books. And, and I get it. I get it because I've been in both places now. And I still I still recall how angry and pissed off I was railing at the establishment Wondering how the fuck these writers I saw as being so much worse than me were getting deals and I wasn't. How the fuck is a whale rape story winning a Hugo Award? I was just raging as a fucking machine for good reason. For good reason. Uh, I think things were just starting to change, ushering in a little bit of a conversational shift. And that was not because the people weren't screaming and yelling beforehand, but because what started to happen, of course, is that people who were screaming and yelling started to get their voices heard. But there was also, you know, just a huge shift coming with the Hugos, which I think we saw, of course, the, the meltdown. When was it? 20, 2012? 2014? Fuck. It's all, it's all blurring together at this point. The Hugos were a, a waste of space for a while. And I, I will say that not at all weirdly. This is unscripted. <laughs> 
thought they were. I felt that they were sort of a waste. Again, speaking as my scrappy upstart self. Now, of course, I feel like this is the most brilliant work ever to come out of science fiction. And whether that's because people in my cohort are just shit that I like or just because they're not whale rape stories, it could go either way. But anyway, things were, when I was coming up, we were really, like, there was already a pushback, but the internet was really starting to come into its own. I think you got Twitter a few years later and the live journal spaces and all that. Like it was really starting, we were really starting to churn. And I think a lot of that conversation shifted very quickly, not because, again, people hadn't been there, but because now they actually have platforms. Anyway, I was raging against the machine with everybody else. And certainly, you know, today I still have plenty of that rage left. Though these days it often comes out, I think, as like snarky humor. I think I was reading an article that calls it like fleabag feminism, which is where we're all pretty burned out on rage. And so we're going for snark instead, because snark and humor are going to last you a lot longer than rage. I found that rage was burning me the fuck out. So I'm even funnier these days. (laughs) Okay, so for me personally, when did when did I feel I had changed from scrappy upstart? Nobody gives a shit what I say to like, oh, she's part of the establishment. It was probably when the tide shifted for me. It was probably when Geek Feminist Revolution came out. Was that 2015? 2014, 15. So that was three or four years after I'd published books. You know, this is my fifth book, I think, that I had published. But the difference was, okay, like my first three books came out from a small publisher. Mirror Empire actually came out from a small publisher as well. And the difference was, you know, Geek Master Revolution came out from a larger publisher from Tor. And the reception was much different because I had positioned myself as some kind of expert right in the space. Some kind of geek feminist expert talking about geek issues. And or if not an expert expert, then at least like a thought leader. A thought leader in this space. I had things to say about again all of these changes going on in science fiction, everybody finally getting a voice, uh, and how we were all dealing with that. And again, once you do that, like good luck coming back from it. I wasn't a bestseller. I certainly wasn't making near enough money to quit my day job. I'll tell you how much I was paid for Geek Feminist. I was paid $17,500 for Geek Feminist. Not all at once. A third on acceptance. A third when I turned it in. And then a third when it came out. And it just earned out 15, 16. Yeah, it took three years to earn out. That's what it was. And so you split that into a third, a third, a third. And then you take off 15% for my agent. And then you take off 20 to 30% for taxes. It was not a lot of money <laughs> and it just now earned out. So I'm getting a few hundred bucks, right? <laughs> a few hundred bucks now from it. It was not enough to quit, to change my life at all, but it completely changed the perception that people had of my work. It was a nonfiction book. That was a big difference. And it broadened my reach, right? It broadened my reach to who knew who the fuck I was to academic institutions. The book was being taught in college courses. And if not the whole book, that at least the big tentpole essay we have always fought uh, was getting assigned like in gender studies and history, feminist, you know, classes, stuff like that. So though I, though I wasn't rich, I was being held up by the establishment, right? Academia and just people's opinion. Again, we have these these hierarchical ideas put into us that if you have a book on a shelf that you're somehow rich or smarter or better or whatever, right? It's just something in our culture. So I was being held up as being the establishment and to me his voice mattered. And that was that. There's no going back. Once you're canon, there's no going back. Once you've written We Have Always Bought, there's no going back. 
Now, as a general rule, I tell other pros that by the time they've been in this business about 10 years, then the kids who read them as teens are now coming up into these spaces as fellow new writers. And because they have read you when they were teens, they are going to automatically look up to you. It's just how we all get about that formative media, right? You just get weird. You're weird about these things. And if you're a bestseller, okay, I'll tell you right now, my friends, if you're a bestseller, if you've hit a New York Times bestseller list, I'll give you, I'll give you, you know, LA Times bestseller list, USA Today. I mean, maybe, you know, I might, I might give you those ones. But if you're a New York Times bestseller, you have a TV show or film with a budget over 50000 that was based on your work, or you've been doing this for more than 10 years, then my friend, welcome to the establishment. Welcome! You might be poor as fuck right now! And you can't afford your health insurance premium, but you are now the man. And I know you don't feel like you are, because God knows I don't. It sucks when it happens. It sucks when it happens and there's no money. I think when it happens and there's money, I think I once told Jared Crombie, I'm like, we were, he was complaining about, oh, I've never won an award or some shit. And he has. He won like a Lucas Award or something now. But anyway, he was complaining. And I said, you know what? I'll give you one of my Hugos for half of your sales. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> like you're goddamn right no because i think when it comes with money then at least you feel like okay i can shoulder some of the responsibility right that comes with having money but it's a lot harder when there's not very much money it's also weird from a community standpoint because suddenly you're no longer treated as an us by the scrappy upstarts, by the clarion grads and, you know, uh, folks who critique media and stuff uh, in our community. But you're as you're them now, you're a pro. You become kind of that rock that everyone is chipping away at. The symbol of the system that needs to be subverted and overthrown to kind of make way for the new kids and their fresh fiction. Which was, was you just a few short years ago. Sometimes just like two years before, right? Now there are perks, okay? I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, you get guest invites and speaking gigs and and then there's just weird things where people will like burst into tears and they meet you and everyone at the con seems to know who you are. And then you get this weird dissonance because you go home and you're just like this another middle aged, you know, white one buying groceries in my case. And it's weird. It's weird to exist as both like this venerated public figure within these very specific spaces and with all these wild assumptions and expectations about you and huge amounts of weight put on everything you say. And then in your day-to-day life, you're juggling insurance payments on credit cards and picking up dog poop every morning and wondering when you'll have enough cash to fix the car. True story. Fame and power are about perception. And I am here to tell you they are not fucking fair. It's true. But what do you do, right, when you get all this responsibility unasked for? You can yell about it, about how it's fake and how you, you don't own it, but it's you don't get to choose, right? It's thrust upon you. You know, you're Katniss Everdeen now. <laughs> this huge burden that you don't want, and you have to decide what to do with it because there are only so many choices, and just rejecting it is not going to change it at all. Now, you can just fade out of public life. You can go live on an island somewhere and stop doing public events. You know, you can double down and just say whatever and take the heat for it without thinking any of these power differentials through. Or you can sort of like embrace it and you can own it. You can work with it. Try and use it as a force for good. 
I've tried to spend like more of my time lifting up new voices in the genre, right? Like wearing books, talking about books, mentoring other writers whenever possible. I may not feel successful some days juggling those credit card payments, but I'm still here. And like the writers before me, folks like Kate Elliott and Martha Wells, who've been quietly writing exceptional books that I read when I was a teen. And they're like now my peers and it's really strange. So I, again, I've been in both of these places. I hope that my dogged persistence and occasional successes really help to inspire folks who come after me. Because it's, it's a long fucking game and you got to play that long game. It's not, you know, wham, bam, and you're done. Unless you're like, unless again, you get like the, the million dollar deal your first time through. I do know a couple of folks who have done that. Good for them. God bless them. I've also gotten used to, and this is something that you should think about if you're a new writer, if you're a debut, because you're also, this is something you're going to have to get used to, right? Is becoming a public figure is this transition of realizing when it's happened. And I've gotten a lot of, I've gotten used to pushback and to adjusting how I speak about things and to apologizing when I'm wrong and to know when to just quietly let people yell about me and my work. I've sat and had perfectly nice conversations with people who have spewed all sorts of vitriol in my general direction online for whatever reason, because they think I'm this or that other thing, or my book is this or that other thing. And there are folks who didn't know me beyond what they read in a tweet or a blog post. And I've learned that the person that they're railing against is often just this idea of me, this authorial persona, right? This person they gave all the power to. And Elizabeth Barrett calls that the authorial persona. And I've always loved that term. So I try not to take it personally because I have totally been there. I have been the kid railing against the man. And I don't mind being the man these days. <laughs> but wow, I sure expected it to come with more money, let me tell you. I've seen the relative fame of science fiction authors compared to that of like YouTube stars. You know, you're famous to a few thousand or tens of thousands of people, but you're still working full time your day job. And occasionally someone recognizes you. And they can't believe that your bank account does not match the idea of your preserved power. Like, why the fuck are you working at this day job? You're the Cameron Hurley. I literally got an email like that. I got off a client call, a bunch of people on the call. One of the contractors for the client actually emailed me back and was like, are you the Cameron Hurley? And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, well, it seems to only be one, so it must be me. And you know, it's almost embarrassing. You do feel a little embarrassed because you're like, I can't afford to not have a second job. And here I have all this perceived power and I'm juggling credit cards. It was Cheryl Strayed who said she was on her book tour for Wild. It had just, the book had just been picked up in Oprah's book club. But of course, it takes a while to get royalties. It takes you six months to you're going to see the royalties from that period. And her husband calls her while she's on the book tour after they just announced the Oprah book club thing. And was like, hey, our rent check just bounced. I mean, can you imagine? I'm sitting here on the Today Show. My rent check just bounced. That is what it's like. It is the weirdest thing. It is the weirdest thing in the world. And you know, I would take the money over the fame any day. Because I just want to live in the woods and write books. If I just had money and I never had to leave the house, it'd be great. But it appears that on this timeline, with the internet, fame is much easier to find than actual money. Which is why, of course, I have a Patreon that supports this podcast and pays that health insurance that is now on the credit card. You can support it at patreon.com forward slash Cameron Hurley. Whatever you do, I will tell you, don't be the guy who's written like 
five bucks and sends angry emails to a scrappy young blogger who is me about how they're totally wrong about what they wrote about your book and blah, 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 blah. That dude was a dick. <laughs> Don't be that dude. You know, be, be a decent human. You know, I remember this story. I was actually telling Daniel Abraham, who is one half of James S.A. Corey, the, the guys who wrote The Expanse. He says he doesn't remember this story, but I remember back in 2007, I was, again, still a scrappy little blogger, and I had written about uh, his Long Price Quartet books. And fairly positive review. Again, great. They're amazing books, and I can't believe that they didn't sell as well as they should have. Everyone should read them. Uh, and I remember him actually crossing, there was, when I was at this foyer at the World Fantasy Convention, and he crossed the foyer and came up to me and said, hey, I really enjoyed your review of my book. And I'm freaking out, right, as a nobody. I'm like, oh my God, because he's about 10, he's 10 years older than me. Yeah. And I'm freaking out like, oh my God. But like, that was the conversation. Like, oh, you know, and I'm like, oh, I really enjoyed the book. And like, you can be a decent human and not a dick. Oh, I really read your thing and I really liked it. Or if they, you know that they they wrote a really shitty review, don't don't mention it. <laughs> don't, don't say anything. I'll never forget. Toby Buckell is a sweetheart. I met Toby Buckell. Someone introduced me to him, and I had just written this review of his book, and where I had some things to say. I had some things to say. He tells me now, but I could see it on his face. He knew exactly who I was because I had, I'd written this. I uh, think, again, I didn't like send it to him or anything. You have to Google it. But I guess he honestly, he knew exactly who it was, but neither of us brought it up. I think it's only been like in the last few months. I think it came up. It came up at one of the lunches. It's like, you know, those th- the things you said in that review, you know, a lot of them were correct. They were, they were true. It sucked. <laughs> it was true. But if, but we brought that up at the point where we were colleagues, right? This is 10 years later, literally 10 years later, 12 years later where we were colleagues. And so we felt we could actually talk about that in a good way, right? Not at the time when I was first introduced to him where I'm nobody, I'm a reviewer. And he has, you know, two or three books, I think out at that point, just not power differential, right? Toby's very good at these things. He understands them. That is something that you need to consider as well, right? Hey, should I bring up the fact that this person, you know, wrote a really scathing review of my novel when I meet them at a con and they're nobody, right? They're nobody, quote unquote. Of course, there's somebody. But you know what I mean? They don't have that perceived power. And I have the perceived power. So I go to them and I'm like, hey, I'm not going to bring that shit up. I'm going to pretend that I never saw that shit. Like, that's the game, man. That's that's being polite. You know, if you want to bring that up 10 years later when you've both written 10 books or they've written 10 books and you've written 20 books. That's one thing, but don't be a dick. Don't be a dick, people. You know, that that's another good podcast name. Don't be a dick. Let's jump then to finish up. Finish up strong! Besides don't be a dick, here are some book recommendations for you. 2019, man. That was a fucking year for books, let me tell you. I've been seeing a lot of end-of-year lists. There are very few books that are making every single list. I think there was that year that Ancillary Justice was on, like, Won every award, it was on every list, and it's much different this year. I think you're seeing uh, maybe three or four books that are consistently hitting lists, but a lot of diversity in the list, which is great. That's what we want. That is a sign of a very healthy field. The Luminous Dead by Caitlin Starling, one of the best debuts I've read in a very long time, just about this scrappy, desperate woman who descends into like this claustrophobic, creepy alien cave system. And she goes going after this lost group of explorers. And her only tie to the outside world 
um, is this voice of her dubious female employer who, let's just say, is not telling her the whole truth. Of course, I don't think anyone who is listening to this podcast missed it because, of course, there's Gideon the Ninth, which is lesbian necromancers in space, quite adjacent to lesbians in space, Stars or Legion. And honestly, if you love Stars or Legion, uh, you're probably going to enjoy Nikki Drayden's Exodus, which is another book out there kind of making womb punk a fucking thing. I have also been told that Lena Rather's novella, which I believe is called The Sisters of the Vast Black, is another must read uh, if you are a fan of Ladies in Space. Lena also just signed with uh, my agent, and my agent has exceptional taste, obviously. Uh, that is a mark in her favor. <laughs> and some of you may have missed it that Emma Newman had a new book out, uh, Atlas Alone, which was the latest book in her Planetfall universe. I have not finished it, but I have started it. And I've read the other three in the series and I enjoyed them all. Uh, so she's finished that up. I think that's the last one, the fourth one in that series. And I think I've already talked about uh, Chaos of Loso's The Wolf of Oranyaro, which is this really lush epic fantasy that features probably the only instance where I can think I was okay with the use of the term the bitch queen in the marketing materials because it just, it worked. Oh, oh, and okay, I have to mention this one. Since we're looking forward to 2020, I just got an incredible book that landed at the house. It is called The Down Days by Ilze Hugo, which is already like a masterclass in voice. It is astonishing. Uh, it's set in South Africa after this laughing sickness has uh, made them cordon off uh, Cape Town. And it uh, follows a bunch of characters who are trying to kind of make their way in this this quarantined city. Really, really, really good stuff popped off the page. That was one of those ones where when you start to read it, you are like, oh, that's what voice is. Um, if you are someone who's struggling with voice, what is voice? What does that mean? Just some really exceptional work. And I assume I, I cannot imagine that I'm going to not uh, blurb that one, but I have not finished it. And I only blurb stuff that I finished. So just so you know, that is coming up in May of 2020, The Down Days by Ilze Hugo. And of course, as we go full tilt into the giving season, don't forget that you can get signed books, light brigade patches, and those alternate lesbians in space covers for the Stars or Legion. And you can get those from me at my Etsy store, which is the Cameron Hurley Workshop. All right. So that is it for me this round, my fam. I'm going to jump off into the ether to work on losing gravity, killing Eve meets Die Hard in space. Take that pitch. Look at that. That's how you pitch. We'll talk, you know, we should talk about pitching next time. I think we will. We'll talk about pitching and we'll uh, talk some Hollywood stuff next time, which I think will be a lot of fun. So until me and until them, take care of each other, be the light, bring the light and all that and get back to work. Thank you.